Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew 21, 1 to 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. In a, in a former life, I was uh, a teacher of technology. Yeah, it's as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, I would help people figure out how to work their iPhones. <laughs> may come as a surprise to you that most of these people were, how shall we say, in the more seasoned areas of life, uh, a little bit older, and uh, they would come in and they would need help with their technology, and, and we would try to teach it to them. And to this day, it's been Almost 10 years since I've been in that position, and yet still today I'll have people come up to me and say, so I've got this problem with my iPhone. And, uh, you know, I'm always like, it's a, it's a user problem. No, uh, one, of the, one of the jokes that we used to always use uh, behind the scenes, and a lot of tech, techie people will, will, will always say is, it's not a bug, it's a feature. And the, the meaning of that phrase is sort of ironic and a little bit, it's supposed to be a little bit humorous, but... A lot of times, people will come up complaining that something doesn't work quite the way it's supposed to. They feel like it should. Now, a bug is when something is just malfunctioning. It's, it's not working the way it's supposed to. It's designed to work. But what you realize after a while is if somebody picks something up and it doesn't work the way they think it should, they think it's a bug. It's a problem that needs to be fixed. Well, they really need to correct this. And so our job as teachers was to help them see it's not a bug, it's a feature. They meant to help you out. This meant to be a benefit, a blessing to you, but you don't know how to use it. And so the, what we try to do, or what we, were, what we attempted to do and often failed, was to change the perspective of the user, to help them see how to think about the thing that's in front of them a little bit differently so that they can actually use this product to their benefit rather than the way they see it right now as a curse. Um, in our passage this morning, Jesus is, is riding into to Jerusalem on a donkey. And all of the gospel writers have this passage or this story in the, their gospel. And all of them tell it just slightly different. Now, all of them basically tell the same story. And there's no facts in the story that contradict each other. That's not what I mean. But they all tell it just a little bit differently. And what that tells you is that each gospel writer is zeroing in on a couple of things that he wants you to know about this story. What this story is actually telling us about Jesus. Each writer does it a little bit differently. Matthew, in the gospel that we're reading, zeroes in on two aspects of this triumphal entry that is meant to change your thinking about who Jesus is and really about the world around us. So with that in mind, let's read our passage here. Matthew 21, 1-11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, it on, their, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the, co the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this text is open before us, but we lack understanding of it, so I pray that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hearts, that we may understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the last section of the book of Matthew. The last big section, anyway. We'll have a conclusion at the end, but the, the last big section, the last major section of the book of Matthew is what we're in right now. I just want to remind you where we've been very, very briefly. In chapters 1 to 3, which is an introduction for us, Matthew centers in and draws our attention to this central figure in the drama that he's unlay, uh, laying open in front of us. That this person, this central figure, is from the line of Abraham. He is from the line of David. He's the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, and he's the rightful heir to the throne. He is Israel's king. He is none other than Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 4 to 7, we're introduced to the kingdom that he's bringing. In chapters 8 to 10, we see the kingdom that he's preaching. It, it actually invades the lives of people, and it actually makes a difference. We see nine healing miracles there in 8 to 10 that show us that this kingdom he's bringing is not just a philosophy. This actually has a real-world impact on people's life. It heals the lame. It heals the sick. It heals the blind. In chapters 11 to 13, we see people on all sides of this Jesus. There's people that believe He is the Messiah, made up of mostly the crowds and the disciples. We see that there are people that are not sure. John the Baptist. And then we see people that are dead set against Him Namely, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the rulers. In chapters 14 to 18, Jesus blows everyone's mind because He is a different kind of Messiah than they ever thought that they would get. He changes the paradigm of discipleship in those five chapters, blowing everyone's mind because He's different than what they expected. Through an introduction, chapters 1 to 3, and through so far four major sections in the book of Matthew, there is this rising tension that is growing in this drama that Matthew is unfolding before us. And in this drama, there are two kingdoms that Matthew has presented. The first kingdom that he has presented to us is the kingdom of the Jews. It's characterized, we've seen, by outward appearance, what people think of you. It is characterized by law-keeping and by traditions and by a ruling class made up of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees mostly. And by this massive brick-and-mortar building in Jerusalem called the Temple. Take center stage now. The second is the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, which is entirely different. It's made up of a class of people that aren't the rich ruling class, but the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And from this moment on, literally our passage, on till almost the very end of the gospel, we're going to see these two kingdoms come to a head as Jesus and the kingdom that He is bringing are beginning with our passage this morning coming into the city of Jerusalem, which is the pinnacle of the city of the Jews, the kingdom of the Jews. Jesus is coming in to do battle with that massive brick-and-mortar building representative of the Jewish kingdom, the temple. The passage and following this passage this morning and following all the way up through Jesus' crucifixion is almost nothing but Jesus pronouncing condemnation on the Jews and the religious system of the law that's represented in that massive temple structure that's in front of him. So our passage this morning is one we're pretty familiar with. It's a holiday, Palm Sunday, right? A little bit of a holiday anyway. It kind of gets swallowed up by Easter a lot of times. And we don't necessarily celebrate tons of the traditions around Palm Sunday and everything like that every year. But we certainly recognize it on our calendar, and we certainly know what it's about. But all of the events that we're reading from this moment all the way through Jesus' resurrection take, really take place in, in, in pretty much one week 
uh, of Jesus' life. And so this is likely going to take us several months to get through it all, but it's really only taking up about one week of the gospel story so far. Jesus is being introduced in this gospel to Jerusalem for the first time. Don't lose that. In the story, of, of, in the story that Matthew and, and actually Mark tell us, Jesus only makes one trip down to Jerusalem. You realize that? In Luke and John, Jesus is going back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem all the time. And in reality, that's what he does. He, he, as, a, as a Jewish kid, he's going to go to Jerusalem several times a year at the very least. So he's been to Jerusalem hundreds of times by this point in his, in his life, no doubt. And Luke and John show that a little bit more. Matthew and Mark want you to see one story of his trip to Jerusalem. It's as if they're saying, not that all those trips to Jerusalem didn't happen, of course they did. It's as if they're saying, though, this is the trip to Jerusalem I really want you to know. This is the trip to Jerusalem where everything changes. This is the climax of the story. This is where it really gets interesting when Jesus marches up to Jerusalem. So in this story, Jesus is being introduced to Jerusalem in two distinct ways. And I, I want you to see what those ways are, and then we'll discuss what it means. Well, we really won't discuss. I'll just tell you what it means. So first, I want you to see Jesus as a prophet. Matthew brings out Jesus as a prophet here in this passage. So Jesus and the disciples, they approach this village of Bethphage. Now, I know that geography sometimes can get a little bit difficult for us to think through, but Jesus has walked up to the village of Bethphage, which is sitting on top of the Mount of Olives. And when it comes to geography, especially when it gets to the Holy Land, and we read these places in the Bible, they can sometimes be a little bit intimidating for us, and we don't always have an image of what to think about in our minds. But from the Mount of Olives, which is right, really right next to the Temple Mount, you can see the temple right in front of you. In front of you is this massive structure. So I've, I've given you this picture behind me. This is a picture I took, actually, in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, or, or very close to the Mount of Olives. And you can see in, in, in the picture, in the distance there, is the golden dome of the rock, I hope. You can see that little golden dome pretty much right in the middle of the picture. Um, in Jesus' day, he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he can see in front of him this massive five-and-a-half-story structure of the temple. Now, on the Temple Mount today is that Dome of the Rock, which is about six-and-a-half stories, but it's roughly the same size. So you get an idea, at least size-wise, of, of about what Jesus would be looking at and about the distance he would be seeing it from. But the point is, from the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple right in front of you. And back in those days, there's no building practically in the whole nation as big as the temple. Five and a half stories, it would have been easily the largest structure within miles. And so they're looking right at the temple as they set foot on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus gives his disciples some detailed instructions. You can take the picture down if you want. Um, he gives his disciples some uh, instructions as to what to do and what, what to do when they get there, as to where to go and what to do when they get there. So they, they get to this village that's in front of them, and they're going to find two donkeys, and they're going to secure both of these donkeys. And one is obviously the donkey, and the second is the colt that belongs to that donkey. And they're told that in the event that the owner of these two donkeys sees you, sees two grown men stealing his donkeys, and when he protests that you're stealing his donkeys, you're to say to him, don't worry, the Lord needs it. And he's going to say, okay, naturally. The story always struck me as weird because you have two grown men going and stealing a donkey and just saying, the Lord needs it, and him just going, all right, that's fine, right? So anyway, he's going to take these two donkeys and they're going to bring them back to Jesus. And sure enough, all of these things take place in exactly the way Jesus describes them. So they do exactly what Jesus says, and they all, that all comes to fruition. And I want you to notice that Jesus, the prophet, has so much command of the Scriptures to the extent that Matthew tells us he's careful to fulfill all the things spoken about him in the Old Testament. That's first. 
And that's obviously magnified in this story because he's able to tell the disciples what they need to do in order that those passages about him be fulfilled. He's a prophet in both directions. He understands what the scriptures actually say about him, and he also understands what's taking place around him in order to fulfill all of those prophecies spoken about him. Isn't that amazing? He's a prophet. So we're told, Matthew tells us, that, it's going to, that it fulfills what takes place in, by the prophet. He doesn't mention the name, but it's Zechariah. And it's, it, it comes to us in Zechariah 9.9, which we'll look at more closely in a minute. But we know that Jesus knows this passage. He knows the Scriptures backward and forward. He has them all memorized. So his fulfilling of this prophecy is not accidental. It's intentional. He knows what the prophecies are saying about him, and he knows what it's going to take to fulfill them. And so he does it. We get to the end of the passage then. All the crowds around Jesus are stirred up. There's this raucous commotion as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds around the crowds ask, Who is this guy? Why, why, is everybody, why is everybody stirred up? Why is there such a commotion? Now, remember, this is Passover week. So there's people coming hitherto and yon from all parts of Israel, not just Galilee. And, and they're all coming to participate in the week-long festivities of the Passover. But as we've already seen, and as Matthew has pointed out, the people that are around Jesus and that are following Him into Jerusalem are mostly from Galilee. They've been chiefly the beneficiaries of Jesus' ministry. They're the ones that have followed him most closely. They've been the primary beneficiaries of his ministry. So there's a high likelihood that many in Jerusalem at this moment have never even heard of this guy. They've come from very far south, from close to the coast in the west. They've come from the east to celebrate the Passover. Galilee's all the way up in the north. There's a very high likelihood many of these people have not ever seen or heard of Jesus ever. And so they're asking the crowd of Galileans that have all seen Him walk on water and calm the storms and heal the sick and the lame and the blind. They're asking them, who is this guy? Never heard of him. But I think it's interesting to see how the Galileans respond. What they say about him. They don't say, that's Jesus the healer. They don't even say, that's Jesus the miracle worker. That's Jesus the rabbi or the teacher. They say, that's Jesus the prophet. I want us to think about a prophet for just a second. We often think of a prophet as a foreteller of the future. And there's no doubt that a prophet's job, one of his jobs, is to tell the future. To tell what's going to happen. And it's one of the ways that you would separate a prophet from a false prophet. What the prophet says is from the Lord, and you know it's from the Lord because it actually comes to fruition. What the false prophet says is from the Lord doesn't actually come to fruition, and he is to be stoned to death. That's the penalty, right? So there is a part of the prophet's job that is to foretell, to tell the future. But the prophet also has a forthtelling job, to foretell what is from the mouth of God. He not only tells the future, he's actually revealing to people the mind of God. This is what God is thinking on the topic at hand. Understand. He's forthtelling what God is thinking. Now, can you just think about that for just a moment? What that must be like to be a prophet. What would it be like for just a moment of your life if your mind were completely overcome with the thoughts of God Himself? Can you just think about that for just a second? What would that be like? Just have your mind 
totally taken over with the thoughts of God. So see, a prophet is able to say to people, thus saith the Lord. Because at that moment, he and God are thinking the exact same thing. So for however long that is, or however brief a moment that is, his mouth is able to articulate exactly the thoughts of God himself. Can you imagine that? So a prophet is a foreteller and a foreteller. Both. But now connect that to today. We live in an information age. At least that's what we called it when I was growing up. Back before I had a computer in my house that could connect to the internet. Then eventually got dial-up internet. And we were able to go to a few small web pages. This was what it was like back in the Stone Age. <laughs> right? Some of you are thinking, you don't know Stone Age. <laughs> now, that was the era we called the Information Age. We didn't know nothing. All right? Now we have a device in our pocket that literally has almost every fact there is accessible on it. You notice you don't get into conversations anymore at dinner tables where you're like, what was that thing? Oh, I think it was this. You just pull out your phone and you just Google it or you whatever it and you find the answer, right? You don't have any more bets that you take. Oh, I bet you it was this. No, I bet you it was this. No, no, no. You just, you just end it right there in the whole conversation. is right there because of the phone in your pocket. We live in what is now, to me, the epitome of of the information age. We have so much information coming at us that do you notice it's now getting very difficult to figure out what the truth actually is? There's so much information out there accessible to us. So much information coming at us from all different angles. How can two news channels see the same event and report it completely different? How is that possible? It seems like, well, there's some basic facts. What are the basic facts of this? There's so much information. It's difficult to parse what is actually true and what is actually false. I don't know how you feel about this past year, but I am so sick of feeling like every day I'm being lied to. Every single day, I feel like it's just a whole pack of lies that I'm just sorting through. And I don't even know if I'm going to get to the truth when I'm done sorting through all the lies. What is true news anymore? Do you know? I mean, one person says, the election was stolen. Another person says, this is the most secure election we've ever had in the history of the world. Well, both of those can't be true. Maybe none of them are true. One person says, don't wear a mask. That's foolishness. The other one says, wear a mask, you fool. Earlier on it was, well, don't wear any mask. That's, that's ridiculous. We don't need to get involved in that. Now it's, if you don't wear a mask, you're the most evil person in the world. How is it that we can be in that situation? At first, at the beginning of this whole thing, it was 15 days to slow the spread. 286 days later, here we are. What's even true? Do you see the value of a prophet from God? A truth teller? There he is, coming down the road on a donkey. Who is this guy? He's a prophet. He's the prophet of God. Everything he tells you is true. You can trust every word he says to you, because everything coming out of his mouth is from the very mind of God. Think about how many things they could possibly say right there about Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's a miracle worker. They don't. 
He's a prophet. Everything that he says is true. Everything that he says is from the mind of God. So fear not, child of God. This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. He's truth incarnate. But I also want you to see what Matthew is, is also communicating to us. He's not just a prophet. Jesus is also a king. I want you to see Jesus as king. So in this passage, Matthew has demonstrated to us that this story tells us that Jesus is a prophet, clearly. But he's not only a prophet, he is also a king. And we know that because he's careful to point to the passage in the Old Testament that this fulfills, this passage in Zechariah that identifies the king that God is going to bring to his people, who is going to bring peace to his people. Now there's, in the book of Zechariah, there are, there are tons of prophecies. So many prophecies that it can get really confusing and it can get really hard to sort through because such is the nature of biblical prophecy. It's sometimes very difficult to discern and understand. But the book of Zechariah builds to this point where God tells the nation through the prophet Zechariah that he is going to judge all of Israel's enemies. I'm going to judge all your enemies. I'm going to, I'm going to lay waste to them. And right after he tells them that he's going to judge all their enemies, he makes to them a promise. And the promise that he makes to them is the passage that Jesus is fulfilling here. So I want to read that out of Zechariah 9, 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Now these quotations that the biblical authors make, especially when they, when they say, this fulfills, and then they give you a quotation from Scripture, it's worth going back into the Old Testament and figuring out what passage that's quoted from and reading all around that passage. Because what you realize when you do that is that not only is Jesus fulfilling that one little verse, the whole package of the context of the book is actually coming into fruition here in Jesus. That Jesus is fulfilling the whole, as they used to say, kit and caboodle, all right? The whole package, the whole thing, Jesus is actually fulfilling. As an example of that, the very next verses in Zechariah say this, Zechariah 9, 10 to 12, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak, this is the king, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, which we'll see coming to fruition in the book of Matthew and, and also in the book of Acts. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will, I will restore to you double your king is coming. And what is he going to do? He is going to rule from sea to sea. He is going to rule from river to the ends of the earth. This king is going to occupy the whole world. Not just the nation of Israel. The whole world he is going to rule. And you're going to worship him. He's coming as a savior. And Matthew is telling us Jesus is fulfilling this right now in his march up to Jerusalem. But that's the irony of the passage. What was promised to us in Zechariah? king is coming. What is he going to do? He is going to rule from sea to sea. From where? From rivers to the ends of the earth. There's no ground that he's not going to rule. And then Jesus steps foot onto the Mount of Olives. And he comes in on his noble steed of choice, which is a donkey. No, no, no. Colt foal of a donkey. The other gospel writers tell us that this colt is so young it has never been ridden on before by a human being. In fact, Matthew is the only one that tells us that the disciples actually had to get both of them, the mama and the baby. Why? Because if you have a colt who's never been ridden on before, and its mama ain't there, it's going to be a bumpy ride, okay? 
So the, the mama comes along with him, with her, to kind of calm her down as Jesus rides on it. Now, when you hear a donkey, I think probably what you're picturing is something like an American mule. Big barrel for a belly, kind of about the size of a small horse, you know, a pretty big beast of burden. But if you go to Israel, even today, you will see that the donkeys over there are much skinnier, first of all, than the American mule. And when you watch a grown man ride on one of these skinnier donkeys, their feet are not very far from the ground. Maybe a couple of feet on a big donkey, all right? So not very far from the ground is this person's feet. When you see Jesus on a donkey, you would think, that seems really small. When you see a guy, a grown man riding on a donkey, it just seems a little small for him because you're used to seeing men on horses, right? Now imagine Jesus on an unridden colt, his feet nearly touching the ground. Needless to say, him riding into Jerusalem on this tiny little donkey doesn't exactly scream king who is ruling from river to the ends of the earth. It doesn't yell king who's ruling from sea to sea. But this is exactly the kind of king Jesus came to be. He's not coming to rule through sheer power on a war horse, dominating everybody in his wake. The kind of king he is coming to be is a king who is coming to humbly serve, to relieve his people from their burdens of sin, which is exactly the kind of king we needed We didn't need one more king to come in and say, this is the law, obey it. Because as it turns out, we can't. We had those kings before. We needed the kind of king who would come in and serve and relieve the burden of sin from us. The king who would come to die in our place and take the wrath of God for us. But I think you should consider for just a moment Take this passage and just pause for a second and consider that we are right now in history situated between two rides of Jesus. One is the ride we're reading about right now, where he's riding into town on a foal. But the second ride won't be on a donkey. Revelation 19.11-16 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we're reading this passage about Jesus riding into town on a foal, this is not merely an opportunity for you to see a humble king. It certainly is that. But it's not merely that, to see a humble king riding on a donkey who's coming to save you from your sins, but it's also a warning. But the next time it won't be that way. But the difference is the time that he returns It will be too late to make any decisions then. Because every knee then will bow and every tongue will confess. He won't be so mild and meek then. 
Here is Jesus, the king. Zechariah says he rules from sea to sea, and he offers you forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And so if you're heavy laden with your sins, he tells you, cast your burdens on me. It's Jesus that is offering you forgiveness, so you come to him in repentance and faith, and you don't wait until the second ride. Because the second ride it will be too late. So here are the crowds. They're reciting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they say that, it's likely a quotation from Psalm 118. That's really important. And the reason that's important is because Psalm 118 and the five psalms that precede it, all the way back to Psalm 113, are called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. We get our word hallelujah from that. Praise you, the Lord, is what hallelujah means. So these psalms, these Hallel Psalms, these Egyptian Hallel Psalms, were sung every Passover feast when the Jews would celebrate their Egyptian relief, their, their exodus out of, out of Egypt. So these psalms are sung. So Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 are sung before the meal. Psalm 115 to Psalm 118 are sung at the end of the meal. In fact, Matthew records for us in, 20, in Matthew 26, verse 30, that immediately following the Passover meal, he says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as after the Passover meal, they go out to the Mount of Olives after they sung a hymn. Those are the hymns that they're talking about. The, the psalm was the hymn that they would have sung as they headed to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to be arrested. Then he's going to eventually be tried and crucified and, and all of that. So what the crowd is doing right now is they're calling for Jesus to save them. They're recognizing Him as King, and they're calling for Jesus to save them in the same way God saved the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Because this psalm, they're, they're prepping. They're going to be singing this psalm in another week in their celebratory meal of the Passover. So, you see, there's significance in Jesus being both prophet and king because only he can save them in that way. And there might not be any more comforting thought in all the world than that Jesus is prophet and king. Because think about this for just a second. Throughout the Bible, God has left himself with a witness to virtually every nation and people as far back as Moses. They have been the ones to come, and you want to talk about the phrase that we use nowadays, speak truth to power? That, a prophet of the Lord, that is speaking truth to power right there. That is literally walking into the king's court and, and telling him he needs to repent of his sins. John the Baptist loses his head for it. But God has always sent His prophets to the world. Whether it was to the Jews initially, we have people like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Perhaps to the Ninevites even, we have the prophet Jonah. To Israel's neighbors, we have uh, Amos, we have uh, Zechariah, we have several prophets that, that preach to, to Israel's neighbors. God has always given people of the world testimony as to His very desires. To go in and declare... Uh, preach forth or even foretell all the things God is thinking about the current situations. They stood before kings. They stood before authorities. They stood before entire nations. But with very few exceptions, they were ignored. They were beaten. They were abused. And in many cases, they were killed by the people they went to preach to. So what makes this prophet any different this, this prophet Jesus, what makes him any different? Is God just sending one more person to the world to preach to cold hearts? To deaf ears? To blind eyes? Is he just sending one more prophet? What makes this Jesus so different from the prophets that came before? Because he's not only a prophet, he's also a king. See, that's different. 
He's a prophet and a king, much like his great-great-great-great-grandfather David before him. He is a prophet and he's a king. He not only speaks the mind of God, but he has the authority to carry it out. You see, that's the difference. He not only speaks the mind of God, but he has the authority to carry it out because this is the point of the triumphal entry, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that you have to understand. Jesus is initiating God's rejection of Jerusalem because he's entering the kingdom, he's entering the kingdom of man, this city, Jerusalem, as king and prophet. In one fell swoop, he's going to condemn the religious elites who are right now sitting on the throne and ruling all the people. He's going to condemn the religious elites through his prophet, like the prophets would of old. They would walk into the court, they would proclaim, right? Jesus is going to do that in the next few chapters. That's all we're going to see him do. He's going to walk in there and he's going to proclaim and tell them exactly what their problem is. And he's going to condemn them. But then he is going to replace their power over people by instituting his own rule and sitting on his own throne. It's going to be a cross. But that's what he's going to do. He's going to completely undermine all their power and authority and take it completely away from them. How? By making peace between God and his people. That's how. That's what he's going to do. There should be some trepidation on our part, though, as we think about that. Because a prophet who speaks with the authority of God and has a kingly authority strikes a little bit of fear into my heart, or it should. Well, this king could crush me under his weight. Who's to say that he's not going to come in and because he wants to squash me like a bug? Well, certainly as a prophet who speaks the words of God, also as the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, also as a king who has the authority to do so, why wouldn't he squash me under his weight? How could I, a sinner, come into the presence of such person? How could I possibly bear the weight of his majesty? We'll look down the road. There he comes, Jesus of Nazareth. On a cult that's never been ridden before. A baby. Never borne the weight of a human being. And here's the king of the universe. Seems to be doing just fine. He doesn't come from a palace. He was born in a stable. He was laid in a manger for a crib. He hasn't come to crush his people. He's come to deliver them. He's come to to rescue them. He's not just a prophet king. He's a savior king. He's coming in humility to save his people from their sins. But I want you to consider why Jesus being a prophet and king is exactly what we need. I don't know about you, but I am so sick of my own sin. It often weighs me down as I think about it. You should think about what life will be like without struggles, without frustrations, without temptation. Our own hearts, we find out in life, our own hearts can't even be trusted. Forget the deceit on the lips of the enemy, or on the lips of the media, or on the lips of social media, or on wherever else you find information. Forget all of the deceit that's out there. My greatest deceiver is inside me. My own heart heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah said. Because see, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 
But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who is to deliver me from this body of death? Paul says in Romans 7. On the one hand, I have so many claims to truth flying at me from all different authoritative sources that it's difficult to parse truth from falsehood. I need someone that I can trust, on the one hand, to speak truth always to me. But on the other hand, my heart is so sin-sick that I'm part of the problem. So I need someone on this side to actually rescue me because I'm just as guilty as all of those liars that I'm railing against now. So only a prophet king will suffice. Thanks be to God. For He's given us the prophet king. A truth-telling Savior who rides not on a noble steed, but on a foal, a beast of burden, lowly, meek, and mild. So what does He tell us all the way back in Matthew chapter 11? Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly of heart and find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. This is exactly the kind of Savior He turns out to be. How will this year be remembered by you? I think there will be a temptation on the part of of many to label this year a bug in the system. Didn't quite turn out like I expected it to. This This didn't work like years are supposed to work. The calendar didn't pass the way the calendar normally passes in years prior. I feel like we've lived 14 years in one. That's a bug in the system. Our lives were shut down. We're driven to complete isolation. Some finances took a big hit. Government, it seems to be, is grabbing lots of power. Tumultuous election process, to say the least. Kids can't go to real school. I think 2020 is going to be remembered by many as a flaw. A bug in the system, a disruption to regularly scheduled programming that's led many to question What is true and where is salvation? But I wonder, in our quest for hope, how many of us have been driven to our to our knees in prayer more? In our quest for truth, have you been driven to the Word of God more? Have you let Him teach you what is true? And what is false? Because I think if you do, you will see that 2020 is not a bug. It's a feature. It's a feature of a world that has fallen. Just like every other year. Perhaps the years prior have not touched you as much as this year has. But it's been the same every year. It's a feature of a fallen world. See, for the Christian, this feature of the fallen world has a purpose. That's why it's a feature and not a bug. It actually has a purpose, and its purpose is to drive you closer to the source of truth and the hope of rescue. It's meant to draw you closer to the prophet King Jesus. That's the reason he came. But has it? Has it driven you? Can you look back over the last year and say, you know what? As bad as this year has been, it's driven me closer to Christ. If not, what do you think 2021 will bring you? You know that nothing changes when the calendar rolls over from December 31st to January 1st. COVID, it turns out, is not a respecter of calendar dates. 
apparently neither is government. It doesn't know the difference in the calendar. 2021 normally, or a new year, normally represents for us a mindset shift. It's a mindset renewal. We make all these promises to ourselves that we don't fulfill. It's a mindset change. But what will it bring you? If 2020, if 2020 hasn't brought you closer to Christ, 2021 is only going to lead to more complaining about circumstances. About all the bugs in the system. Or, if 2020 has driven you closer to Christ, I suspect 2021 will drive you even closer to rejoicing over how much more enriched your life with Christ is becoming. Either way, choice of whether to receive this prophet king or not is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer is that we are driven closer and closer to you every single day. I pray that this year upcoming will lead to our sanctification. That you will produce in us hope and a desire for you. Lord, I'm guilty of belly aching and complaining about the last year. And I I know that even in my own life, I'm not nearly as sanctified as I want to be. Or even as I know I should be. We know we're not what we will be. But we praise Christ because we're not what we once were either. We're redeemed. And we can celebrate that. We can celebrate Christ's coming. We can look forward to another year knowing that it's also going to be filled with all kinds of craziness and opportunities to exercise hate and vengeance, opportunities to exercise love and kindness. Opportunities to share Christ, opportunities to be quiet about Him. It's going to offer us all the same opportunities to repent from sin and to rejoice. We pray that we would choose by the power of Your Spirit, be driven to our knees in prayer, be driven to the Word and hope, and be driven to collection of Your body to praise Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.